You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Psychiatrists would say I led a very rich fantasy life. And when you're alone, you do. You do a lot of dreaming, and the next thing to dreaming is pretending, and pretending is acting. Actor Hume Cronin. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. You know, sometimes if you're an actor, it helps not to have a specific look about you. For example, early in his career, a casting director told actor Hume Cronin that he didn't look like anything. But of course, that may have helped him achieve the longevity that many actors only dream of. The Canadian-born Cronin enjoyed a decades-long successful career in the theater, on Broadway, in television, in movies, radio, not to mention a 52-year marriage to actress Jessica Tandy. Well, finally, in 1991, the then 80-year-old Hume Cronin wrote his autobiography, a book he called A Terrible Liar. That's when I had the chance to meet him. So here now, from 1991, Hume Cronin. Why did you write this book? Because I got bullied into it, as I tell you in the foreword, which is only a couple of pages long, but a wonderful writer and a dear friend and a collaborator for 12, 14 years, Susan Cooper, um, uh, who had published 13 books, um, uh, said, you should write a book, you should write a book. She kept at it to a point where it really became quite irritating. And uh, um, I, I finally snarled at her one day and said, look, you want me to write a book? I'm not going to. I'll write you some letters. You, you give me a list of things you want to write about. You want me to write about, and I'll write your letters about those things. And she, she indicated, she said, I, I think your growing up years were belong to a whole different age. Um, you should write something about them. And I love that story about such and such. Or, and and how did you get your first jobs? Because I came from a background where uh, nobody knew anything about the theater at all, really, except to go and enjoy it. Um, your first work in films, your work with Hitchcock, um, your first works in the theater. How did you get jobs? Um, things like that. So I wrote her four letters, and they were about twenty pages each, and they took quite a lot of work. I enjoyed those, and I, by the time I'd written the four, I thought, well, <clears throat> I'm started. I, I mean, maybe I could get out a slim volume called Letters to Susan. And in fact, I had a portfolio which had on it L, the figure 2, S. And that's what I thought of it as, Letters to Susan. And I sent them off to her with some pride, actually. And I thought, I've done those quite well. And got a telephone call from her. There was a real ice-cold shower. She said, this won't do it all. I said, what do you mean it won't do it all? She said, well, you keep referring to me. I didn't even meet you till 1974. And you start this book by talking about your boyhood in the 1920s. Uh, she said, it just doesn't make any sense. You've got to take a more conventional form. I said, look, I said I'd write you letters. That's all I'm going to do. And so I put them away. And two or three months went by. And I thought, gee, I did quite a lot of work on those. I, I, I got started. I, I suppose I could rewrite them and put them into a... Um, a, a more usual form. And 
that was it. And I started, and then I'd put them aside and go off and make a film. Then I'd come back to it again, and then I'd go and make another film, or I'd appear on the stage, or something of that sort. So it was written in sort of fits and starts. I think I could have finished the whole thing in about a year to 15 months if I kept at it steadily, instead of which I started this in 1987, and here we are, 91. But there, there, there is a, a restlessness about you throughout the book. <laughs> there, <laughs> That's like my wife saying to me, when do we start packing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, but I like that. It, it, there, there's, there's something to be said for settling down in one job, in one house, in one city, for 50, 60 years, you, you, you get married there, you see you raise your children there, you raise your grandchildren there, you retire there, and you die there. There's something to be said for that. But it sounds so much more fun to do this. <laughs> well, that very nice man who drove me over here and is guiding me around from one interview to the next said to me, coming over here, he said, well, where do you live? And <laughs> it's not a new question. And I just said, somewhere else. Um, it's I'm always somewhere else. Uh, I have a, an apartment in a hotel in New York, furnished by the hotel. Nothing there belongs to me except my clothes. Um, and uh, Jesse and I have a house out in Connecticut, which we see all too infrequently. Of course, one day that's going to stop. You know, I, I, we're probably not very far off that moment either. You can't plan your life with that day in mind, though. No, I don't. Why do you say in the book that many people are disappointed when they hear the story of how you and Jesse met? Well, because it's, it's not very romantic. I mean, it's, it's hardly hearts and flowers. Um, uh, we met. We disagreed. Um, she turned to me after... Uh, I'd gone out to supper with her. <clears throat> and uh, another fellow who was um, interested in her. And I was sort of a tag-along. And uh, the, the conversation was a bit halting. And uh, I s- made some comments about the nature of the English, Jesse's, of course, English. And I thought I was being mildly amusing. And she was very silent. And then Alec and I started talking. And, and then I went back to this business of the English and told what I thought were a couple of amusing incidents about the idiosyncrasies of the English. You know, the English are, are I mean, they're wonderfully eccentric, or, or can be, um, and they have, contrary to, they have a marvelous sense of humor. I mean, I, these are generalities. I've also mm-hmm. met Englishmen that were dull as hell. But, um, uh, but I, she let me go on and go on, giving me more and more rope. And then she turned to me and she said, you really are a fool. <laughs> that, that was how it started. So I had quite a lot of uh, brownie points to make up. But that story in itself is almost like a Hollywood story, isn't it? The, 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 boy meets girl, girl hates boy, or boy, boy makes fool in front of girl, and then everything becomes right and they... they... Don't reduce it to that, please. <laughs> Come on, Bill. How do you explain that you've stayed together for almost 50 years? Pretty simple. I love her. <laughs> um... I don't know how to explain it. I, I think, I think it helped. This is an odd thing to say, that I had a failed marriage behind me, and Jesse had a failed marriage, too, and so perhaps when we married, we uh, 
were a little more realistic about our expectations than we would have been otherwise. Divorce is unpleasant, as it carries with it always a sense of failure. Um, and it makes you think two or three or four times before you try it again. Um, but I have to pay a great tribute to her, really. I mean, her patience, her understanding, her, her compassion, and above all, her realization that two people who work together a lot, and I mean on a very intimate basis, sharing the same bed, the same breakfast table, same rehearsal hall, the same performance at night, the, and very often, as in our case, in two character plays where there are just the two of us. There's nobody else to take it out on when you feel mean. Uh, it's, uh, it can become very claustrophobic. Have I pronounced that word properly? Mm -hmm. um, and there's a need f for space and aloneness. I, I don't mean loneliness. I mean just to be alone at times. And Jess is wonderful about that. And I think sometimes when I've said, I'm cutting out, I'm going somewhere else, I'm going to, um, I'm going to be alone for a while, she's probably been rather relieved. Uh, but uh, I've been very grateful for that latitude. After this short break, how the young Hume Cronin got into acting instead of a career in the law. There are now two new ways to listen to Now I've Heard Everything. Full episodes are now on YouTube. Just search for Now I've Heard Everything. And if you're on TikTok, watch for the promos we post about new episodes. Tap the link at the bottom of the video to hear the full episode. Now back to my 1991 conversation with Hume Cronin. What was the earliest age that you can remember that you wanted to be an actor? That you wanted that you wanted to be in show business somehow? It started when I was very young. Um, I don't know, when I was seven, eight, or nine years old. By the time I was 16 or 17, I had become, quote, sensible, unquote, and uh, been persuaded by example, not by any pressure put on me by my family, uh, that, you know, this was unrealistic and that I better try to become a good corporation lawyer, which is what I went to university to do. And then when I got there, I found I was spending all my time with the Dramatic Society in the productions of the English department in the Montreal Repertory Theater. I went to the University of McGill. I'm a Canadian. Um, and, uh, it suddenly struck me, look, I, I'm never going to get a degree anyway, and I've never been sure I wanted to become a lawyer, and I know I want to do this. Um, why? That, that's a tougher question. You haven't asked me, really, but... And I can only guess, and I think part of it was that I grew up one of five children and was much the youngest. When I was ten... My next sibling, my the younger of my two sisters, was 23, and uh, the the eldest was 28, 29, and married and off on his own, and uh, and so was the other brother who was 16 years older. Um, so I had a lot of downtime <laughs> um, and went off because my father was very busy. Um, I went off to boarding school 
at the age of seven, which, by the way, I think is too young. But uh, <clears throat> in uh, where I grew up, it was it, it was conventional. Uh, it, it really wasn't strange, and uh, if your parents could afford it, that's generally what happened. Um, but uh, I, psychiatrists would say I led a very rich fantasy life. And when you're alone, you do. You do a lot of dreaming, and the next thing to dreaming is pretending, and pretending is acting. And My father read aloud beautifully. And uh, the stories that he told me, whether they were about Mowgli or about animals, uh, he used to read me a lot of stories about animals, um, uh, uh, or Treasure Island, or the White Company, or Tarzan, or I would go off and become those things. I'd become the cowboys, the Indians, and the horses too. I mean. Um, that's the best I can do, Bill. <laughs> That's pretty good. What do you say to youngsters who want to get into show business, but they want to be stars from day one? They want to be. They want to have the top billing. They want to be on the network TV shows, being the stars. From they don't want to do the grunt work. They don't want to to put in the long hours in the, in small towns that nobody's ever heard of. What do I say to them? Good luck. <laughs> I don't think it's a good way to start. There's no shortcut to success, is there? No. That kind of success is generally a fluke and doesn't last very long. I mean, it's like if you've got any respect for it at all, it's a craft. Like, I mean, you have to know the job as well as that of a plumber or, or a carpenter or a lawyer or a doctor. And you have to put in your apprentice time. And... Uh, if you're fortunate, you get a lot of it. I mean, the number of failures I did in the theater was a tremendous advantage to me. If I'd started right off in a big hit that ran for two years, I doubt that I've ever had the courage to leave it. And yet, in those two years, I, I might have done, you know, worked with six or eight different directors and done eight or ten plays. I mean, I was... When I started to do some necessary research on this book, I found that in one period of 22 months, I had appeared, I couldn't believe it myself, in 17 plays. And I went back and, re and recounted and thought, that's not possible. If I tell anybody that, they won't believe me. But it's quite accurate. I did 11 plays in stock. Now, that's a play a week. Mm. Uh, you don't find that very often now. Uh, stock companies have gone out. My very first job was right here in Washington at the National uh -huh. Theater, uh, and I was playing in stock. Uh, I only appeared at that point in one play because I think I was taken on into the company at 15 bucks a week um, as a favor to somebody else. I don't, you know. Um, but then I'd done those 11 plays in stock in that 22 month period, and then I did six plays on Broadway. Uh, three plays on uh, a season for two consecutive seasons. That's six plays. All of them, of course, failures. Uh, otherwise, I could have never have done that many. Um, but while at the time it was depressing and I just yearned to be in something that had the cachet of success about it, I think it was 
enormously valuable. It was wonderful training. Of course, my youngsters know you best for cocoon and batteries not included. Well, that's a whole new generation. Yeah, you know? you're reaching. It, it, it's it, it, is, it is amazing to me that that someone with with your with your your the history behind you with all the plays, the movies, Hitchcock, Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> my dad would have loved that story. <laughs> Bless his heart. But the kids now they know. Oh yeah, that's a guy from Cocoon. Yeah, well, that's to be expected. Actually, I played many things that were just as successful as Cocoon back in the 40s and 50s when I was under contract to MGM. Um, and uh, I had some wonderful parts to play. I was never a romantic leading man, but I, uh, I, I had real, no real desire to be. The more makeup I can pile on, the more things I can hide behind, whether they're the, the wardrobe or the, the makeup or the accent or the... Uh, the happier I am. You really didn't look like anybody, did you? <laughs> That's what I was told. My very first theater interview. Um, very nice lady who was taking time out to guide someone who was green as grass, knew nothing. Uh, Mr. Cronin, I think you may have a difficult time. Why? Well, because you don't look like anything. <laughs> and then realizing that she may have sounded rather rude, she hurriedly went on to explain that. She said, your best chance of getting a job now is to walk into an office, a producer's office, a director's office, and have them say, ah, that's what I was looking for. That's exactly the type. You, I'm sure everybody will feel that's the paper boy. Uh, that's a young lawyer. That's an artist. Uh, that's a steel worker. That's, you know, whatever. Um, the fact that I don't look like anything, I think, has been something of an advantage because it's allowed me to play a great many quite different things. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or any question that you oh, wanted just to Just buy the you? book, Bill. Buy the book. It's called A Terrible Liar, A Terrible Liar by Hume Cronin, and go out and buy it. Early and All often. Right. <laughs> After 52 years of marriage, Jessica Tandy died in 1994. Now, two years later, Hume Cronin married Susan Cooper, his longtime friend, the one who persuaded him to write the book we just talked about. They were married until Hume Cronin's death in 2003, which happened just a month before his 92nd birthday. Now, you can get a copy of A Terrible Liar by Hume Cronin, by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, HeardEverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. And HeardEverything.com is also where you'll hear my 2004 interview with actress Maureen O'Hara. He really was. Believe me, he was a fine actor. And I would know that more than anybody because I was a fine actress. <laughs> <laughs> and my 1991 conversation with actor Mickey Rooney. See, that's the trouble with people today. They can't, and youngsters particularly, that get into trouble, get into gangs. It's hard for them to accept their own individuality if they only knew how important they were. And don't forget. We post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, every Wednesday, and every Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms, including, of course, YouTube. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we're kicking off an unusual week for us. It's going to be Reagan-Nixon-Carter week. 
And we're not talking about the presidents. Each day next week, we'll be talking with a relative of one of those presidents. On Monday, my 1989 conversation with presidential daughter Maureen Reagan. He came on the scene at a time when the American people were losing confidence in themselves. And his confidence in them allowed this nation to begin to get its own wheel moving. And that was the most important thing that he could bring. And that'll be followed on Wednesday by my conversation with presidential brother Edward Nixon. And on Friday with former First Lady Rosalind Carter. That's all coming up on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.